Hey everybody, welcome to the Useless Knowledge Podcast, the podcast that reminds you that all knowledge is useless unless you apply it. On this podcast, we will discuss economics, education, business, real estate investing, politics, relationships, and a lot more. Go ahead and like and subscribe to the podcast. Enjoy the show. Free labor in the NCAA, part one. Follow the money. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's your host, Clinton Woods. Thank you for tuning in today. Do me a favor right now. Go ahead and subscribe and share the podcast. Got a great topic on deck today. Looking at free labor in the NCAA, part one. Follow the money. And so I broke this down into several parts because, like I said, this is a wide-ranging topic, and I don't want to rush through it too much. And so uh, we're familiar with some of the bigger companies, Amazon, Microsoft here in the country, how they work and function, how they make money. But there's another industry, the NCAA. They are largely uh, have a large workforce, but they're able to make a great deal of money without actually paying that workforce. And so want to kind of get into and see how they do that. How are they able to accomplish it? How are they able to continue generating revenue year in and year out without actually having to uh, pay the people largely responsible for generating said revenue? And so um Looking first, one thing that I found that was interesting, a group, uh, the Nonprofit Times, they basically uh, share information about nonprofits. But one thing that they do is a yearly report and they rank them. And so while the NCAA was not included on their report that they put out, they did rank a lot of organizations. And had they ranked the NCAA in terms of revenue, uh, the NCAA would have been 19th in the country for uh, nonprofits in terms of revenue. And so we look at like the YMCA, Goodwill, Salvation Army, Red Cross, Habitat for Humanity, Boy Scouts of America. And so you see the type of nonprofits that they would, uh, that they're on par with, so to speak, as far as how much revenue that they generate on a yearly basis. And so the revenue is significant. And so we've got to, in, under, in order to understand how they accomplish this, we need to know little bit more about who they are and so when you ask the question who is the NCAA according to their website they are the National Collegiate Athletic Association is a membership driven organization dedicated to safeguarding the well-being of student athletes and equipping them with skills to succeed on the playing field in the classroom and throughout life we support learning through sports by integrating athletics and higher education to enrich the college experience of student athletes NCAA members, mostly colleges and universities, but also conferences and affiliated groups work together to create the framework of rules for fair and safe competition. All right, a couple things in there. I do want to you put a pin in the word uh, phrase student athlete. That will be important as we go forward. So just put that in the back of your mind, student athlete. And what does that mean? So looking further at the NCAA. Like I said, they are a nonprofit organization. They regulate student-athletes from uh, roughly 1,270 or so American institutions and conferences. They also have some schools that they oversee in Canada. Of those 1,270 or so institutions, about 480,000 college student-athletes competing across 24 sports. They're based out of Indianapolis, Indiana. And like I said, they oversee, they're unique because they oversee the schools, the students, the conferences. And so they, they're overseeing various levels of uh, basically the system. And so there's several layers to it. 
all the way down to the individual student, the college or institution that they attend, and then the conference that that college or institution is a part of. And so these member schools also cite that they support their student athletes' academic success by providing state-of-the-art technology, tutoring, and access to academic advisors. And so your continual continual theme will be the fact that uh, individuals that are playing sports have uh, additional access to some things like state-of-the-art technology, tutoring, and academic advisors. And so continue to listen. You'll hear similar themes as we go forward and start breaking down different parts of this puzzle. But looking at how the NCAA came to be in the first place, when was it created and why? Uh, 1905 in New York. Uh, President Theodore Roosevelt at the time called a conference and convened a conference in response to specifically repeated injuries and deaths in college football. And so it had become a problem between the number of injuries and deaths that were occurring in this sport that everyone was uh, just enjoying more and more. But, you know, of course, you're having a lot of people dying. That is a problem. The president calls a conference, convenes all these colleges and universities to New York. Some of these colleges and universities had already discontinued the sport of football. And so that gives you a little bit more context as to how serious it was. But um, as a result of these meetings, they created what was called the IAAUS, the Intercollegiate Athletic Association of the United States, formed the 62 member institutions. Uh, it became official March 31, 1906. Four years after that point, the name changed to the NCAA that we know today. And so that is how it got started. Fast forward to August 1973, uh, they converted to the, the three-division system that we're familiar with today. You know, we've heard of Division One, Division Two, Division Three. Division One is further broken down into a few sections. The ones that we are most aware of are Division One A and Division One AA. Um, out of those three divisions, only two of them are able to offer scholarships to athletes for playing a sport. That's Division One and Division Two. There are 347 Division I schools, 312 Division II schools, 442 Division III schools. And so now that we've kind of been able to take a, a quick look back and just get an understanding of how the NCAA came to be, where they got their start, uh, you can kind of see a lot of it was built out of a concern for uh, the well-being of individuals playing sports because it was born out of uh, as a result of a lot of injuries and the need to better regulate and take care of uh, the athletes. And so kind of can see where they came from. But we do need to get into the, our, our overall thing that we wanted to determine is how they're, how the system is able to work, how they generate so much money. And so we have to ask how much money is made, where does the money go? Boom, NCAA, $1 billion, $45 million last year. The large uh, chunk of that money was made on the – March Madness basketball tournament. And so that is the, our college basketball tournament. Roughly $867 million was made on that basketball tournament. And you're talking TV contracts, marketing rights, et cetera, et cetera. Also championship ticket sales throughout all the sports. They have championships, uh, games, and they sell tickets for those games. Going forward, we kind of see just as a part of March Madness, it, it, it is a tremendous um, moneymaker for the NCAA. And so, 2010, the NCAA initially signed a deal with CBS Turner, uh, signed a 14-year deal worth $10.8 billion that ran through 2024, uh, gave CBS Turner the rights to air uh, basically the March Madness basketball tournament. They got 
six or so years into that contract, 2016, they signed an extension, eight-year extension for an additional $8.8 billion uh, to extend that contract to, to, to cover March Madness going forward. And so uh, right around, looks like the year 2024, this contract will shift to being a little over a billion dollars per year uh, solely for the rights to broadcast uh, March Madness on a year-to-year basis. And so you see one contract, one television contract, is generating a huge sum of, of of money. And so we zoom out. We made the point that the NCAA oversees a lot of these institutions. And so once we begin to look a little deeper into what these institutions make, um, you know, we see a bigger number. And by institutions, we're talking about your individual colleges, whether that's uh, University of Alabama, University of Texas, USC, et cetera, et cetera. You've got a lot of institutions out there, and collectively, all of these NCAA institutions, according to the Department of Education, generate about $14.1 billion a year. And so that's everything from broadcast deals, corporate sponsorships, ticket sales, apparel deals, merchandise sales, student fees. And so a lot of money on the table, a lot of money to be made, a lot of money that we're talking about, roughly $16 billion on a year-to-year basis. That is significant. Let's look specifically at our Power Five uh, conferences. And so when I say Power Five conferences, I'm talking about the ACC, SEC, Big Ten, Big 12, Pac-12, or Pac-16, wherever they're at today. But those are your biggest conferences. Those are your main conferences. A lot of your uh, major uh, powers in the sporting world are within one of those conferences. And so I want to take a look at them there just to give you an idea of how much money is is in play here and so we're talking about those five conferences 936 million dollars is paid in student aid to 45,000 student athletes and so that's a big number you got a lot of student athletes 45,000 uh just shy of a billion dollars being paid to the student athletes and so comparison the coaches in the uh same power five country conferences there is 4,400 power five coaches Uh, And they are getting paid $1.2 billion. And so you kind of can see a little bit of this dynamic here where 4,400 coaches make more money uh, than 45,000 student athletes receive in student aid. And so we can see a little bit of a disparity there. Uh, Like I said, $1.2 billion to 4,400 coaches, $936 million, 45,000 student athletes. According to also, we mentioned, like I said, the only one double A, one double, uh, only division one and, and division two schools are actually able to award scholarships. And of those two divisions, they award approximately two point nine billion dollars worth of athletic scholarships per year to one hundred and fifty thousand athletes just across all of those member institutions that offer scholarships to division one and division two athletes. So we're continuing on this conversation about where the money comes from, how much money is made, where does the money go. And so we can't have the conversation around uh, dollars and sports, especially college sports, without talking about gambling. And so although the NCAA doesn't make any direct money off of gambling, it does generate a lot of interest and bring more uh, eyeballs and spectators to their their sports. And so uh, before we go too deep into that piece, I do want to make it clear that the NCAA opposes gambling in all forms. Uh, I want to just share a snippet from the actual NCAA. Uh, it gives a little bit of light into how they regulate internally when it comes to anyone in and around any of these sporting 
uh, teams, games, events, anything. And so the NCAA opposes all forms of legal and illegal sports wagering, which has the potential to undermine the integrity of sports contest and jeopardizes the student athletes and the intercollegiate athletics community. And if that's not clear enough, they go on to give additional information about this. And I quote, if you participate in a sports bet of any kind by putting something at risk, i.e. money, entry fee, or a tangible item for the opportunity to win something, you become ineligible to play sports for a year. This would include participation in fantasy leagues, Super Bowl pools, March Madness, brackets, etc. And so they're pretty clear about where they stand and they do hold uh, coaches, athletes, uh, anyone in the athletics program fairly accountable uh, for violating these rules. And so they've disqualified people in the past. There's been some horror stories around gambling in college sports in the past. And so uh, they, they do make that stance pretty clear. I do want to make that clear myself. Do want to look though? Last July, 2019, the NCAA announced that uh, UNC Greensboro athletic staff was in violation of some of these gambling infractions. And so, taking a look at that, this was the most recent issue that that arose. And so, they basically came up with a negotiated resolution agreement between the NCAA and um, UNC Greensboro. And basically, this was the Division One Committee on Infractions. They have a panel. Uh, and they they reached this agreement. And so just a little bit about what exactly happened at UNC Greensboro. There were a couple of individuals, uh, assistant coach on the women's basketball team, I believe an assistant athletic director, uh, were involved specifically in placing bets. So a couple of people actually placed bets on sports, including uh, men's basketball and other non-school related sporting events. But Specifically, I think the one to really pay attention to is the fact that they were actually betting on the men's basketball team at UNC Greensboro. So you had six athletic department employees who were aware that they were making bets, didn't say anything. A seventh staffer found out, came for about four months later. And so this is kind of what's included in the report. There was a specific release that was put out. The university and the NCAA enforcement staff agreed that the university failed to monitor and ensure compliance with NCAA rules when seven staff members did not initially report the activities of one of the two men. A women's assistant basketball coach, the former assistant coach, also violated NCAA ethical conduct rules when he did not cooperate with the NCAA investigation. So we go on quickly, take a look at the punishment. They received three years of probation, the school did, and a $15,000 fine. And all, like I said, all this was a negotiated resolution. Uh, six staff members acknowledged they knew about it, uh, but two of them actually made bets. And so those individuals received some additional punishment, a 15-year show calls for the former assistant coach, a four-year show calls for the former assistant director. And so they were dealt with uh directly and probably uh this coach probably won't be able to coach again it's very unlikely but um you know so they 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 do kind of stand behind what they say when it comes to gambling but can't really dispute that gambling does bring more attention to their sport and so now that we got that disclaimer out the way NCAA in no way supports gambling we can move forward and look at how much money is actually generated uh, via sports betting uh, when it comes to college sports and so according to a uh, 2019 Forbes article uh, sports betting 
last year, 2019, really exploded when it came to March Madness. And so before, uh, really before 2019, it was illegal to play sports bets anywhere outside of Las Vegas in the United States. And so that changed for the first time. 2019, people were able to make sports bets outside of Las Vegas. Some states allow it now, some don't. But you saw a tremendous uptick. Uh, and legal gambling last year around March Madness. And so whether or not those people were betting before, I can't speak to that. But we do know that we saw a large uptick in uh, March Madness last year. So we saw $8.5 billion bet on the NCAA tournament. $8.5 billion. And so that breaks down a little further. Uh, the NCAA tournament brackets and pools. Basically, people like to fill out these brackets to try to predict who's going to win the tournament game by game. Pick your final four. You pick all the way down to your eventual champion. You have $4.6 billion uh, invested in the brackets in some way or another. Projected roughly 149 million brackets, over 40, 40 million people. Those break down to about $30 per bracket, which was bet in some form or fashion on uh, March Madness alone. Gambling definitely brings more people to watch sports and uh, more people to watch sports means more money for advertisement, means uh, more money that these television companies will pay for the rights to air these events and these games and these tournaments and these championship games. And so it's a continual, continual process. So we've looked at the revenue. It comes from uh, television contracts. It comes from um, marketing deals. It comes from corporate sponsorships, ticket sales, merchandise sales, apparel deals, student fees. You know, there's money coming in from all kind of different directions. And so we can see how much money is on the table. There's a ton of money here. And so I want to share something. Uh, Chris Murphy, who's a U.S. senator out of Connecticut, he wrote a report last year entitled Madness, Inc. And he uh, really detailed a lot about college sports and the NCAA and, and a lot of issues that are going on there. We will definitely talk more about his report, but I want to share something from the opening that really just kind of sets the table and gives some clarity and really framed, I thought, the report in a very interesting way. And so he really looked at Zion. Uh, when he said Zion, he's talking about Zion Williamson, who was an 18-year-old uh, out of South Carolina, signed a basketball scholarship with Duke, and for all of 2019 was basically what we call must-see TV. And so he's a very exciting player. Uh, and so he, he opened this uh, report basically entitled Madness, Inc., talking about Zion, a shoe, and madness. And so we got to rewind, go back to February 20th, 2019, Duke versus North Carolina. The game was held at Cameron Indoor Stadium on Duke's campus. 18-year-old Zion Williamson, definitely must-see event. You had 4.3 million people tune in, and so that number is significant because it became the most viewed co weeknight college basketball game in ESPN history. Game day tickets are being sold for $4,000. You got Spike Lee in the audience, President Barack Obama sitting courtside, and Zion Williamson injures himself pretty early in the game when his Nike shoe explodes. And so it's important to note that his Nike shoe exploded because the next day, Nike stock dropped 1.1%, which equates to a $1.1 billion loss. And so we kind of are able to, to see the influence that this unpaid college freshman has when something happens to him and the, the stock price of Nike's entire company drops over a billion dollars. Um, 
So we see the influence they have. We see the amount of money that the NCAA brings in on a yearly basis. We see that power, that influence. And so as we go deeper into this, there's a, it's like I said, it's a wide-ranging topic. It's definitely going to break this down into several sections. But we're getting a feel for how much money is brought in, how much money is made by the NCAA. But this is just the beginning. There's so much more we've really got to get into. We've got to learn what is amateurism and how does this play a role in this system that they've built. What is a student athlete? Is there collusion involved? There's a lot to get into. So I want to thank you guys for listening today. Definitely go ahead right now, subscribe to the podcast, share this podcast with somebody. Thanks for listening once again. Be blessed. This has been another episode of Useless Knowledge. Like, subscribe, and share the podcast now. Also, visit the website for merchandise, show notes, or to recommend a topic. And remember, all knowledge is useless until you apply it.